Hello, and welcome to another installment of Unraveling Religion. I am your host, Joel Lessies, and it is my uh, honor to welcome Phil Borges to the program today. Oh, thank you, Joel. Thanks for having me on. I, I wanted to just ask you, begin, Phil, by uh, sort of introduce yourself and, and sort of like who you are and, and what you do. So my name is Phil Borges. I'm a documentary photographer and filmmaker. I'm currently making a feature-length documentary that we've titled Crazy Wise, and it takes a cultural look at how severe mental distress is defined and treated in different cultures. So that's what I'm doing right now, but I've uh, spent years, um, 25 to be exact, uh, in the indigenous and tribal communities around the world, documenting uh, issues that these people face, usually their human rights issues. And um, I spent five of those years just focusing on the individuals that we call shaman. They go by different names in different communities, but they're people that go into non-ordinary states of consciousness to act as healers or seers for their community. I, I was wondering what brought you to this work for, for you? What was your what was your segue into this? Okay. And, and before I answer that, Joel, I'll just say the number of people that are emailing us every week, just since we've had our trailer out there. We just made this little trailer for Kickstarter. And just since we've had that out there, we must get six to ten emails a week saying, I had my break 10 years ago, this is what happened, this is what I wish would, would have happened, uh, and I want to tell my story. Yeah. So um, just by putting that one story out there, this young man named Adam um, has inspired so many people to want to put their story out. And I think that's the way this thing will change. But back to your question. So it first happened um, 20 years ago. And I was doing a book on Tibet, and mainly it was a human rights story of the issues happening in Tibet. And I was in the little town of Dharamsala, India, where the Dalai Lama now lives in exile, along with about 80,000 other Tibetan refugees. And I was invited to go into this small monastery that's right next to his residence called the Nechung Monastery and watch this young man, he was 30 years old, uh, young monk, go into trance and in our terminology, channel the state oracle, which is a disembodied spirit um, called the Nechung Oracle. So this young monk, which they call the Kutin, mm -hmm. and that's the Tibetan word for the physical being who can act like a medium and channel the spirit. So anyway, I, I watched him go into trance, and uh, it was quite a spectacle in terms of the whole scene. It was a little monastery. Maybe there were 50 monks inside, and they all started beating their drums and um, chanting. And he sat back in this chair. He had this big robe on, and they put this big ceremonial hat on his head. And his eyes kind of rolled back, and his face got red, and he started shaking a bit. 
and he started talking in a very kind of a high-pitched voice. And the monks gathered around him and wrote down everything he said. And that went on for about, oh, five to ten minutes. And then he kind of slumped uh, in his chair, and they had to help him out of the room, almost carry him out of the room. And I just kind of sat there. I was one of two Westerners in that was that had been invited in. I just kind of sat there with my mouth open watching this. So two days after that happened, I was uh, invited to sit in on an interview with him. And one of the questions that we asked is, how did you become the Kutin? You know, did you go to Kutin school? <laughs> how did this come about? And he said, well, I was hearing voices, and I was feeling very anxious. In fact, at one point, I thought I was dying. I didn't know what was happening. My consciousness was shifting. And he actually felt these electrical currents going through his body. And he said, an older monk took me aside and told me I was gifted. And he taught me how to handle this state how to go in and out of it, and that's how I became the Kutin. So I, I just kind of tucked that away in the back of my mind and went about my work doing this book and exhibit that I did. The book was called Tibetan Portrait. And again, it was quite a political book. It was about the Chinese invasion of Tibet and the occupation thereafter. And I did that project, and two years later, I was doing another project for Amnesty International in northern Kenya, and I was out photographing, and I had my guide with me, in, and I was in the Samburu territory of northern Kenya, the Samburu tribe. My guide turned to me, and he said, you know, these people that we're meeting, and we were just meeting people randomly to do their portraits and tell their stories. He said, these people are told, telling me that the predictor, their predictor, had told them that you were coming. Mm. And I didn't think too much of that because obviously I was there. Mm -hmm. And anybody could see that. Um, so <laughs> she went on to just, uh, they described what I looked like. And of course they could do that because I was standing right there. But they also described my assistant, which was kind of is interesting. She was from Los Angeles. She had, before she left on the trip, long blonde hair. And they had described her as having long white hair. And But before she left, she had cut her hair and put henna in her hair. So she had shorter sort of auburn hair when she showed up, or almost red. And so we thought that was kind of interesting. And then... They went on to say, you know, this happened after several people. Another person would say, you know, they, they told us that you would hide from us when you took their photo. And I, when I'm using one of my cameras, and I hadn't even taken this camera out because it was a new camera for me and I hadn't started using it. It was a view camera. And, to, and I had to put this cloth completely over my head and I'm inside hiding behind the camera. <laughs> so, you know, that got our attention. And so we finally meet this predictor 
And she was a woman about 35 years old. Her name was Sakulin. And she had the same story as the mm. as the Putin. Yeah. Um, only she had was was actually seeing visions. Yeah. Um, having fainting spells. She was very very nervous. She said very frightened and te- almost terrified. And a grandmother took her aside and told her that she had this gift. Mm. And the grandmother was her mentor and and helped her through it. So after that, I I started um, looking up these people in these tribes and in these indigenous communities I would go into and actually asking, who are your healers? Who are your clairvoyants? Um, or who are your priests? And every community I went into had one, two, sometimes four, five, up to ten of these people in their communities. Mm. And uh, so I, I spent five years interviewing these people and, and specifically going around the world, finding them, and doing an interview. And one of my questions was, how did you get into this? And all but, yeah, I must have interviewed 45 or more of these people, and just a handful, maybe four or five, um, did not have the story. Uh, most of them had the story sure. of having these, what we would call a psychotic break, in their late teens, early 20s, yeah. sometimes in their adult, late adolescence. Then I, I kind of... The last shaman I interviewed, I interviewed in uh, 2001, uh-huh. and it was over in Pakistan. I had uh-huh. heard there was a young shaman being initiated in a group called the Kalash, and that, it's a group that's right on the Afghan-Pakistan border. That group is an animistic group. They, they're, they're surrounded by Islam, but they hang on to their very animistic roots and um, believe in nature spirits, and, and they have shamans. So I get there, and I find the shaman, and it turned out he wasn't a young man. He was 60 years old. Uh, we had to walk way up in the mountain. I took my son with me. And we walked way up in the mountain to find him. And he was a goat herder. And, and his job was very, very difficult because there's a lot of snow leopards up in that area. And snow leopards are among the smartest animals on earth. I mean, to keep your flock away from snow leopards would be a full-time job. That was his job, but he was also a shaman. And he had the same story. Mm. So, um, anyway, I came back from that trip, and I had an exhibit down on Lower Broadway in New York, and I went to that exhibit. That was September 9th that opened, and I flew home the next day, and that was September 10th. Then September 11th, 2001 happened, Uh. and I kind of, at that point, thought, you know, what am I going to do with this shaman project? I, I mean, it's interesting that they all had this similar story and how they came into it. And, and I had some 
interesting anecdotes, but I, I just kind of shelved that project and went on to do other things. It was about two and a half years ago uh, that I decided to do a film on meditation. And I teamed up with a, an old friend of mine who is very spiritually oriented and she has a lot of friends that meditate. And I said, well, let me just, you know, I'm doing all these other projects in different parts of the world on women's issues. But when I get back into town here, can you line up a couple of people that um, are meditators and we'll just start interviewing them? So the first three people I interviewed, two of them had had a psychotic break. Oh, wow. They were 19, 20, and both had gotten tremendous relief from doing the meditation. And that's when I met this young man, Adam, hmm. and that's when this project began, telling you how I got into this. I'm so glad that you, you give a full, full picture and background and contact context, Phil, because uh, I've actually, you know, I've watched many of the trailers and followed much of your work, and I know Adam through the work that you've, you've posted, and uh, he seems a very tender-hearted and, and special individual. Yeah, he is. very sensitive, and that's usually who, um, who has these issues, who, when um, they, uh, when something happens in their life, who knows what triggers it, but um, they tend to be the more artistic. Um, they tend to have that side of them. Those are the ones that usually that usually can get into trouble with with these breaks, especially sure. the way they're defined and the way they're treated here in our culture. You mean just straight diagnosis? You mean diagnosis, diagnosed as? Yeah, the diagnosis is a problem because it usually ends up putting a very stigmatizing label on the person. You're in that very vulnerable state of where you're essentially leaving consensus reality. And, and when that happens, it's terrifying. And so uh, what you say is really interesting to me. And one of the things is uh, with women empowered, I, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that because it's really fascinating to me. Well, yeah, um, and it was a very practical project in terms of um, the message I wanted to put out there. So, you know, as I said, I've been working in the developing world for 25 years. I've been traveling to it for almost 35. And um, one of the things I first noticed early on is how much work women do. Yeah. Not only the women, but the young girls. And... Um, and how much discrimination they face. Uh, young girls typically, uh, if, there has to, if a choice has to be made in terms of who goes to school and who doesn't. So anyway, the young girls carry the firewood, they carry the water. Sometimes carrying the water can be an all-day project if yeah. the well is several miles away. Um, they take care of the, their siblings almost as soon as a girl um, can walk. She's taking care of a younger sibling. She has, a, and consequently, the family needs that for their survival. So those those young girls typically don't go to school. There's a lot of other issues. Uh, women die in childbirth needlessly all over the planet, 
and in remote areas. And it's usually because they bleed out after delivery. And that can literally be stopped in 90% of the cases or even more with a 40 cent pill called misoprostol. Mm. It contracts the uterus and, and stops the bleeding. So women don't have access to health care. The other thing about women is they produce half the world's food, but they only own about 1% of the farmland. Their access to resources is much more limited. Only 17% of the women in the world are legislators. In other words, the people who make all the decisions, only 17% of them are women. Mm. In the United States, it's only 17 or 18%. Um, Violence against women is huge. It's huge here. It's huge all over the world. In fact, many of the people that are coming forward to us and telling their story have been abused sexually as young as children. Because all of the stress and uh, kind of like uh, lack of support or forced to be put in situations of like exerting great effort to care for your family, these stressors, if you have the right combination or wrong combination, if you want to call it, of genetics, and these stresses without the support tie into exactly what Crazy Wise is. Yeah, um, that stress, I mean, where I saw the stress the heaviest was in Afghanistan, and I was documenting a school program there. I was there in 2005. And so what happened when the Taliban took over is they fired all the women, and the women made up 70% of the school teachers, like 50% of the healthcare workers, 50% of the civil servants. And the other thing about that, when these women lost their jobs, it not only devastated the educational community, it uh, also, many of these women, uh, a large portion of them were widows because their men had been fighting for 25 years. And uh, so all of a sudden, a woman with a family, no means of support, no social network, a safety net, no social security or anything like that, um, were, were just having to fend for themselves. And they'd have to pull their kids out of school. Yeah, and they were under great stress. And, and, and actually, if we could take this in, into a different gear for a minute and just talk about from the human condition, the human perspective collectively for people that, you know, in, in tying this into our emotions, just any individual's emotions, that uh, there is a range, obviously, but like they serve us, right? I mean, emotions serve us to, to, to give us boundary, to tell us how we feel, what is working for us, what does not. And when we begin to quell that or stifle it or enhance it in ways that are chemical, that are not really organic, uh, you're getting into a whole other set of problems. Well, I, I, I have to agree, Joel. I mean, I'm not an expert in pharmacology, I'm going to say, but I'll tell you this, that I've interviewed several psychologists, especially the psychologists we refer to as transpersonal yeah. psychologists, Stan Groff, and they look at, they, the way they explain it, they say the psyche itself like the human body, is self-healing. Yeah, yeah. If given a safe container. How could it not be, Phil? You know, I mean, how could yeah, it not be? Yeah, so it, the analogy they use is 
You know, if you break your arm, yeah, you have to go to the doctor and he'll put something around it, that uh, a cast that'll hold it in place. But what's doing the healing? It's the intelligence of the body. Exactly. It's yeah. the doctor doing the healing. The doctor is providing this safe container, right. quote unquote. Right. And it's the same with um, a mental break. Uh, that psyche is looking to integrate something that's new, something that's come across that it, it, it's having to reintegrate into its consciousness. I guess you could use those terms. Sure. Language starts to fail when you get into this realm. But anyway, if, if that integration process is interfered with, and if it's frightened, for one thing, if you're given a stigmatizing label, mm -hmm. or if you're isolated, you know, the brain is a social organ. It needs, it's, it wants company. It wants um, relationship. If you stigmatize, isolate the person, and then drug them, um, you know, it's a very dangerous combination. I think so, too. And, and let me just add a, a kind of... Uh like little uh, note that uh, I'm not saying, or I don't think that you are either, that there's no place for antipsychotics or conventional psychiatric medication, that there's a time and a place for them. But the kind of uh, uh, overarching, just mindless use of them to quell what we don't like to see or what makes us uncomfortable just because it makes us uncomfortable, uh, I don't know about that. You know what I mean? And I, I think that to, to skillfully really understand the depth and context of what is being expressed in an individual and then skillfully administering with, with a kind of uh, great care that it, it, maybe it will be for a lifetime, but it may not be. And so often I see, I see a situation where people are, they have this in, in, in Western culture, uh, a, a psychosis, a psychotic break. And, uh, you know, certain people are like, they're done. You know, you are done. You are done. And what they mean by that is really that you are done with convention. And you are done uh, in, in the sense of, like, you are going to be on medication forever. And I found that uh, through my own exploration of my own medication uh, and conjunctional uh, support, that uh, it is an, an ever-changing, evolving, and uh, kind of uh, interesting... Uh, aspect or characteristic of myself that um and it and it it doesn't come without great danger it does i mean i have to be very cautious and very careful but it doesn't mean that i just wholeheartedly hands off do not explore that this is my body my life my psyche my experience and i think that i'm in charge of my uh condition and my experience so therefore with the help of professionals who really care uh that that that's something to be explored because it's an ever-evolving ever-changing thing you know so that's right. No, I, I echo what you just said, Joel. Um, medications have done a lot of good for a lot of people. They certainly have for me, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it isn't, you know, if you're in that very, um, if, if you've gotten to a very manic or um, you can't sleep at night, uh, which often happens, they're very good for calming down those initial per periods. The thing that I have against the medications at this point, after interviewing all these people we've interviewed, uh, is that they're being way overused. Mm -hmm. And um, 
it, it it's like we are not only biological beings, but we are also are social. We have our psychology, and we have a spirituality. So, the thing with the biomedical approach, which has essentially dominated the treatment in our culture, it has muscled out the psychosocial um, aspects of treatment and the spiritual aspects. So that's my um, that's my problem with the the, the medications that they're being way overused. And, you know, it's really frightening at the rate they're being used in kids. You know, ADHD is this huge, you know, catch-all for a, a variety of symptoms of a, a child that, that may be bored in school, who knows what. But six million kids labeled ADHD a New York Times article came out a couple of months ago saying 10,000 toddlers, two to three-year-olds, are now on um, ADHD medication, which is speed, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just gotten out of hand. And that's, uh, we, you know, if you look at the growth in medication, um, just in sales in the last 20 to 25 years, it's increased 80-fold. And the interesting thing is during that same period of time, the people going on um, SSDI, Social Security Disability Insurance, for mental issues has um, gone up fourfold. Mm. So why, if we're if these medications are completely doing their job, why aren't the number of mentally disabled going down? That that, that we have to ask ourselves. Um, so yes, in the short term, acute handling of conditions, sometimes in long term in certain individuals, but. To give somebody, when you first diagnose them, a diagnosis of no hope, that you're going to be on, there's nothing you can do, your brain is diseased, you'll be on these for the rest of your life. Um, I'm hearing a lot of people say that they were told that. And that, yeah, so that really, and, you know, so that's, that's what I have against this. So trying to come up with solutions but it can get out of hand yeah um you know the corporations have one mandate and that's the bottom line yeah to serve their shareholders and that's it yeah and it's interesting i I just when you were speaking phil i thought for a minute about uh this issue that uh really we trade uh we trade uh the treatment of say psychosis we trade the human interaction, support, teaching, and mentoring for a pill. And I just there's something really wrong with that, in, in my estimation. And not that the pill needs to be discarded or neglected, but there, it, in conjunction, I think it would be a, a much more powerful approach. You know, And, and part of the difficulty of that, but the party, part of the difficulty of that is, like, really, do we have enough people who are, who are uh, capable of providing that support, you know, and, and how do we find that? How do we increase that? How do we, 
how do we how do we gain uh, uh, significance for for people in in society to to want to address the needs of others, especially those who, in certain cultures, are considered healers, leaders, gifted. You know, what are we doing with with those people? You know. Well, I think as people learn that there are other effective ways of handling this, and um, and there are. And we found a great program up in northern Finland called Open Dialogue. In this little town way up near the Arctic Circle, a town called Torino, a population of about 70,000. And it might have been because it was up near the Arctic Circle where it's dark most of the winter, but they had the highest level of schizophrenia in Europe uh, 25 years ago. And they started this program called Open Dialogue, and it was a, a kind of a revolutionary way they handled these first break psychoses. And today, they have the lowest level of schizophrenia oh, in all of Europe. Well, well, well. So they are obviously doing something right. And, you know, when uh, we were talking with them, and I haven't gone up there yet, but I've talked to the woman here in a, in the United States who is bringing open dialogue to the United States, um, their methodology. She uh, was telling us, uh, so when somebody has a break, they don't send the person to the hospital. The team goes to the person's house. That's number one. They keep the person in their familiar surroundings with their social network, with their family, they encourage their lovers to be there, their wives, their spouses, whatever. Um, they um, want their employers there if they're working. And they conduct this thing called open dialogue. And what the, so first of all, they don't isolate the person. They're not sent to an emergency room. So many people are sent to an emergency room when this happens. And in an emergency room, you're second on you know, in terms of importance, if there's a car crash victim that comes in or a heart attack or a shooting, they're going to be serviced first. And you may be strapped down even in the back room for hours or days. And so that's the worst thing for somebody in this state that's, you know, panicked because they're leaving consensus reality. Um, so they don't let that happen. They go to the person's house. That's number one. And then this open dialogue, they're not there to make a diagnosis. You know, the whole thing about diagnosis is we have this manual. It's called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Diseases. And people are starting to react to this, this book. Um, it, it was first published in 1955. Uh, and the, the fifth edition just came out a couple of months ago. The number of disorders, mental disorders, has grown. <laughs> this was a 200-page book when it first was published. It's now over 1,000 pages. A lot of people say that that diagnostic and statistical manual is just an excuse for not listening. Mm. So you can go into a doctor uh, a psychiatrist and sometimes I'm not saying this always happens but maybe they only have an hour to see you to talk to you about they'll go down and you'll list your they'll ask six or seven questions of criteria 
And if you meet the criteria of a certain diagnosis, yep, you're bipolar, or yep, you're schizoaffective, or you're depressed, or you're severely anxietous. Um, I said all that just to say, in Finland, they go in, they don't want to do a diagnosis. They don't want to put you in a pigeonhole. They want to listen. What is your experience? What's happening? What are you experiencing? They And they don't judge that experience. You may say, you know, I'm seeing Martians in the room. They don't judge it. They don't say you're nuts, you're crazy, you, 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 there's no Martians in the room. They go with whatever it is. So that's one thing. They call it, they drop the clinical gaze. Uh, yeah, powerful. And, and they say that's extremely powerful. 